0: Follow the show on Twitter at Best Song Podcast, where you can participate in polls, talk about your favorite movie songs, and dive deeper into the rich history of movie music. Let's settle in now for another year in movie music with host Jeff Cummings.
1: Remember when Jerome Kern raised a big fuss over his song The Last Time I Saw Paris winning the Academy Award in 1942? because the song had not been written for the film, but rather composed almost two years earlier? Well, the Academy made some rule changes to appease Kern immediately after that, but apparently it wasn't enough. Over the next eight years, many songs would get a nomination even if they didn't completely conform to the rules. Remember the song Love Letters, which never appeared in the film of the same name, but got a nomination anyway? And then there was last year's Oscar winner, Baby It's Cold Outside, which was written three years before it was put into Neptune's Daughter as a replacement for another song. The Academy heard the complaints, and as we turn the calendar to 1950, it's clear they really listened. Under the guidance of Music Branch Chairman Johnny Green, the eight-person Music Branch Executive Committee worked to revise the rules for the music awards to prevent composers and songwriters from finding loopholes thereby sneaking into an undeserved nomination. In terms of the rules for original song, there were some major wording additions to make it perfectly clear what constituted an original song. For the first time in the actual rules, the Academy specified that an eligible song shall be construed as a work consisting of both lyrics and music. But that's not all. To keep songs like Love Letters from getting the Academy's approval, an additional rule was added for songs in 1950. It reads this way, quote, To be eligible for the Best Song Award, at least eight bars of both lyric and the melody of the song must be used vocally, End quote. That means we need to actually hear the song in the film in some form. Eight bars would be about 15 seconds. Not really enough to get the gist of a song, but just enough to qualify. And remember that Baby, It's Cold Outside had never been commercially recorded before it was used in Neptune's Daughter? Under the rules for 1950, the song would still be eligible. The new rules state that the song must be recorded for use, quote, in an eligible picture before the song is publicly performed or exploited in any other medium. And to prevent any misinterpretation that was bound to occur, the Academy spelled out the meaning of publicly performed to mean, quote, Any public performance for profit, public performance at a benefit where admission is charged, or public performance where admission is free but open to the general public. Nowhere in that list is Private Party mentioned, which is where Baby It's Cold Outside had been previously performed. And the Academy took care of songs such as Lavender Blue, which got an Oscar nomination in 1949, even though a large part of it was borrowed from a 17th century song of the same name. Quote, if a song includes a substantial portion of a lyric or music previously exploited in any other medium so that the present use becomes what is known in the trade as an adaptation rather than a work original as to both lyric and music, the song is not eligible for an award. Well, those were a lot of big changes to the best original song rules. Certainly every songwriter who believed they had a song worthy of a nomination read the rules and made sure their songs fit the bill. As we examine the five nominees for Best Song of 1950, we'll see if they did follow the rules. The rules were changing all over Hollywood, as Senator Joseph McCarthy was ramping up his search for communists in the United States through his interrogations of public figures ranging from sports stars to movie personalities. Though the House Un-American Activities Committee had started in 1947 to blacklist those entertainers who admitted to communist leanings, The campaign increased significantly in summer 1950 with the publication of Red Channels, a pamphlet that named 150 personalities who were found to be communist or communist sympathizers. Those listed in the pamphlet found themselves unemployed for about a decade, unable to even get a phone call with anyone in Hollywood. The effect was felt across all branches of Hollywood, not just the more famous actors. A few songwriters were named in the Red Channel's pamphlet as well, including Oscar winner Yip Harburg, the lyricist for Over the Rainbow. Burl Ives found himself blacklisted just one year after starring in Disney's So Dear to My Heart, where he sang the Oscar-nominated Lavender Blue. He'd get employment just a couple of years later after he testified for the House Un-American Activities Committee and would be an Oscar-winning actor in 1958. And to add to the troubles going on in the United States, North Korea invaded South Korea in June 1950, starting the three-year Korean War. Not as many Hollywood celebrities enlisted to fight in this war because the draft wasn't enacted, so the effect the war had on Hollywood's movie output in box office was minimal. So let's start listening to the Oscar-nominated songs of 1950, and we'll take these in alphabetical order this time. Remember, there will be plot details discussed throughout the episode. We start with the song, Be My Love, from the movie The Toast of New Orleans. The song comes from composer Nicholas Brodsky and lyricist Sammy Kahn. This was the first project Kahn worked on for nearly a decade without longtime partner Jewel Stein. At the time the songs were needed for The Toast of New Orleans, Stein was on the East Coast getting his Broadway show ready with lyricist Leo Robin. The two of them created some iconic songs for Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, which was a hit show for Carol Channing as Lorelei Lee, including the song Diamonds Are a Girl's Best Friend. So with Stein deciding that Broadway was a better place for him than Hollywood at the moment, Kahn turned to Brodsky, a new arrival in Hollywood from Eastern Europe. Brodsky had training in opera while studying in Europe in the 1920s, and that training came to good use for The Toast of New Orleans as the plot involved two opera singers who prepare for a staging of Madama Butterfly. Catherine Grayson, who was celebrated in Hollywood and in the opera world for her soprano abilities, was co-starring with Mario Lanza, a newcomer to Hollywood. Lanza was trying to become a superstar opera singer as good as Enrico Caruso. When Louis B. Mayer saw Lanza performing at the Hollywood Bowl in 1949, the head of MGM, signed Lanza to a lengthy contract. Lanza's first movie was That Midnight Kiss with Grayson. That movie was a big success, and MGM fast-tracked their next movie together, The Toast of New Orleans. Though the movie features a lot of arias from such operas as Madama Butterfly and La Traviata, the three original songs from Brodsky and Kahn stand out as major vehicles for Lanza's talents. We meet Lanza's character, Pepe, in a small fishing town in Louisiana. Grayson's opera singer, Suzette, is traveling through the town and is invited to sing at a local festival. After a selection from Carmen, she begins to sing Be My Love until she is joined in by Pepe, who has fallen in love with her. Suzette sees Be My Love as nothing more than another song. Pepe takes it literally. Singing the yearning lyrics directly to her while she attempts to finish the song without looking embarrassed.
2: Be my love, not a petty this year. This need that you and you are create free. Is. Just my arms, the way you filled my dreams, the dreams that you
1: If you heard a voice like Lanza singing at this local festival, you would want to make that voice heard in larger venues. And that's what happens, starting a chain of events that leads him to New Orleans to study how to be an opera singer. Pepe, as well as his very annoying uncle, are invited to dine at a swanky restaurant with Suzette and the opera director, where Pepe's lack of high society manners become evident. He's told to be quiet, and to his amazement, told not to sing whenever he feels like it. That brings us to the second performance of Be My Love, which will serve as Pepe's introduction to the opera crowd.
2: When I'm happy, I have to sing. Take right now. I'm happy. Oh, no. Be my love, for no one else can end this yearning, this need that you and you alone We have another singer here tonight. Maybe you've heard of her, Suzanne Micheline. She's
3: bashful, huh?
1: with Nicholas Brodsky was a fun experience for Sammy Kahn, or at least Kahn says so in his memoirs. One thing that amazed Kahn about writing Be My Love was that Nicholas Brodsky had already written the music for it before he met Kahn. It was called Love Theme for Mario Lanza and the notes were printed, not handwritten, on the music sheet. No chance of changing a note with this man, Kahn exclaimed in his book. And it was a major departure for Khan, whose love ballads had never been set to music typically meant for opera arias. Khan was the one who performed Be My Love first for Lanza, a real ego buster for Khan if there ever was one. But Lanza had already heard the melody and was just waiting for Khan's lyrics to give it the thumbs up, which he did. Lanza's commercial recording of Be My Love was not a duet with Katherine Grayson or any other singer. In spite of that, or maybe because of that, the record was Lanza's first to sell more than a million copies in the fall of 1950. It certainly helped to market the film and make Mario Lanza a household name. Unlike his fellow singers who became actors, such as Bing Crosby and Frank Sinatra, Lanza was still largely undiscovered when he became a movie star, and he struggled with the demands of his MGM contract while also trying to continue his quest to be the next big opera singer. It was so stressful that Lanza's alcohol and eating addictions almost ended his career before it started. But he managed to keep up appearances and have a healthy movie career through the mid-1950s. On to our next nomination for Original Song, and it comes from the first fully animated Disney movie since Bambi. It's Cinderella, which featured three songwriters who were new to the Disney life. I still find it odd that after all the success of the Disney songs since Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs, Walt Disney never kept those Oscar winners on his staff. It was a revolving door at the Disney Music Department, which worked out well for Mac David, Al Hoffman, and Jerry Livingston, who came into the project as the first songwriters on a Disney film not already employed by the studio. Livingston and Mac David had been a songwriting team for a few years in Tin Pan Alley in New York City and wrote some largely forgettable songs for Broadway shows. In 1945, Livingston also wrote a song for the comedy film Christmas in Connecticut with Al Hoffman, and the trio published their first song in 1947 called Chibaba, Chibaba.
4: Many a year ago in old Sorrento, a certain ditty. Was quite the thing. Whenever a mother rocked her baby in Soreto, this little ditty she used to sing Chababa, Chababa, Chihuahua, Angelaua, Kuka Lagoomba, Chababa, Chababa, Chihuahua, my bambino, go to sleep. Chababa, chababa, chihuahua, Angelawa, Kukulagoomba Chababa, chababa, chihuahua, my bambino go to sleep All the stars are in the skies, ready to say goodnight Can't you see your doll is sleepy too? Close your drowsy little eyes, mama will hold you tight while she sings a lullaby to you oh
1: the nonsensical lyrics that are supposed to help a baby fall asleep was reportedly liked so much by walt disney that he wanted those three songwriters to do something similar for a song for the fairy godmother in cinderella who would use a series of weird words to conjure the spell that would change Cinderella for The Prince's Ball. These three men were brought in to write songs for Cinderella after Larry Morey and Charles Walcott's songs were discarded during the early production stages in the mid-1940s. The result is six songs for the film, many of which became extremely popular. Of course, there's A Dream is a Wish Your Heart Makes and The Work Song by Her Mice Friends but the song for the fairy godmother is the one that garnered the Oscar nomination. It's called Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo, and it happens at the big turning point in the film. When Cinderella realizes she can't go to the ball because her evil stepsisters ruin her dress, the fairy godmother answers Cinderella's prayers and makes her the most beautiful dress, complete with that famous carriage made out of a pumpkin. The getting ready for the ball scene is about ten minutes long, but the song "Bibbidi Bobbidi Boo" lasts just fifty seconds. The song somewhat continues for the remainder of the scene, though the fairy godmother speaks the rhyming lines instead of singing them. Now,
3: uh, now the magic words. Salagadu, lamentagaboo, la bibbidi, bobbidi, boo. Put them together, and what have you got? Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Salagadula, menchikaboola, bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. It'll do magic, believe it or not. Bibbidi-bobbidi-boo. Now Salagadula mean, a menchikaboola-roo. But the thing in about that does the job is bibbidi-bobbidi-boo.
2: Oh, you one
3: of these, it, huh? Oh, it's beautiful. <laughs> yes, isn't it? Now, with an elegant coach like that, of course, we'll simply have to have, uh... <coughs> mice. <laughs> mice? Oh, this really is nice. Why, we'll have a coach and four when we're through. Just a wave of my stick and to finish the trick. it? Oh. boom! Gracious, what did I do? I was sure there were four there. There should be one more. Oh, there you are. Did it? Boom. Boom. Oh, poor, little the
5: bird
3: serves him right, I'd say. Now, um, there were we? Oh, goodness, yes. You can't go to the ball without, um, a horse. Uh, another But tonight, for a change, you'll handle the reins and sit in the driver's seat, too. For instead of a horse, you're the coachman, of course. Big, fine. Well, that does it, I guess. Except for oh yes, the finishing touch, and that's you. Yes, Bruno, that's right. You'll be footman tonight. Liberty, poverty,
5: boom.
3: Well, well, hop in, my yeah. dear. We can't waste time. But, uh, now, 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 don't, don't try to save me. Oh, I wasn't. I, I, mean, I do, but, but don't you think my dress? Yes, it's lovely, dear. Love, good heavens, child. You can't go in that. Now, uh, let's see, dear. Your size and the shade of your eyes. And, mm-hmm, something simple. But daring, too. Oh, just leave it to me. What a gown this will be. Oh, it's a beautiful dress. Did you ever see such a beautiful dress? And look, glass slippers. Why, it's like a dream, a wonderful dream come true. Yes, my child, but like all dreams. Well, I'm afraid this can't last forever. You'll have only till midnight, and then night. Oh, thank you. No, 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 just a minute. You must understand, my dear. On the stroke of 12, the spell will be broken and everything will be as it was before. Oh, I understand, but it's more than I ever hoped for. Bless you, my child. I... God me. It's getting late. Hurry up, dear. The ball can't wait. Have a good time. Dance. Be gay. Now off you go. You're on your way. <laughs>
1: For all the previous animated films, the publishing rights to the songs were sold to outside companies. But Walt Disney decided to finally keep the song rights in-house and created the Walt Disney Music Company. From then on, all sheet music and commercial recordings of songs made for Disney films would benefit the studio, which really helped Walt Disney Pictures climb out of the financial hole they found themselves in just before the start of World War II. Cinderella also made some major profits for Disney, raking in $4.3 million to rank as the highest-grossing animated movie up to that point, just about a half-million dollars ahead of Snow White and the Seven Dwarfs. And just as expected, Al Hoffman, Mac David, and Jerry Livingston were not asked to stay on the Disney payroll for much longer. They wrote just one song for 1951's Alice in Wonderland called The Unbirthday Song, but I suppose they knew they weren't going to make a career at the Disney studio. Mac David and Jerry Livingston continued their partnership for many years, and we'll hear more songs from them later in this podcast. As for Al Hoffman, this is his only Oscar nomination. He would keep writing songs off and on in the 1950s, but his career was cut short at age 57 when he died of prostate cancer in July 1960. The next nominated song has quite an interesting history behind its creation, its appearance in the film and its popularity outside the film. It's a story unlike pretty much any other we've discussed so far in 18 episodes. The song is Mona Lisa, and it made its debut in the movie Captain Carey, USA. It's completely understandable if you didn't know that this song was written for a motion picture because the commercial recording is far more popular. The song is an integral part of the film, performed in the opening scene when our title character, played by Alan Ladd, is hiding out in an Italian home during World War II. The song, Mona Lisa, is a secret code to warn Americans when the German soldiers looking for them were nearby. So, we get this song late at night when one of Captain Carey's Italian friends sees German troops approaching the house. He tries to pretend like he's just casually singing the song as the soldiers pass by. Then he stops mid song and runs to help his American friends escape detection by the Germans, at least for a while.
4: Mona Lisa, Mona
1: La contraseña,
5: peligro.
4: i Ove well, l'altra Mona Lisa, ricordante sorridi per tentarci vola. O oh, nascondi qualche crudo del dolore a ricordarsi
5: quanti sogni.
1: Yes, it's performed in Italian. We've heard a couple of nominated songs performed in a language other than English before, but this is the first time that the song is sung only in a language other than English in the film. Oscar historians have incorrectly claimed another song that was written a decade later, never on Sunday, as the first nominated song to be performed completely in a foreign language. But Mona Lisa is the true title holder. Those historians probably never watched Captain Carey USA to hear Mona Lisa as it was used in the film. The song is not about the famous painting by Leonardo da Vinci, but rather about an Italian lady who has a charm that is as mystifying as the woman in the painting. Is she happy? Is she sad? The lyrics in Italian, according to an Italian friend of mine, don't make much sense in a few places, but in some places, It sings of a woman who smiles like the Mona Lisa painting to either tempt a love or to hide some sort of pain. It's written by Jay Livingston and Ray Evans, who came off their Oscar-winning Buttons and Bows for Paramount with this assignment. Just to clarify, Jay Livingston is not related to his Oscar competitor, Jerry Livingston. So in between these two films, Captain Carrie USA and The Pale Face, Ray and Jay wrote songs for various Paramount pictures, including the film debut of the comedy team of Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis called My Friend Irma. Writing Mona Lisa for Captain Carey, USA might have seemed like a throwaway assignment at the time, but it would turn out to be the most popular song of their careers. Livingston said in a 1988 interview that he and Evans were told to throw away Mona Lisa after the film's title changed to After Midnight. Paramount wanted a song called After Midnight, So Ray and Jay set about writing what they felt was an inferior song to Mona Lisa. When the film's title was changed, again, this time to Captain Carey, USA, the songwriters asked that Mona Lisa be reinstated, and it was. Livingston didn't say who was responsible for translating their song into Italian, but it's clear it might have been someone not clearly versed in Italian, or someone who just wanted to find words that fit the melody. Mona Lisa is performed only once in the movie with words and music together, but it gets a couple of important instrumental renditions later. The first comes when Carrie returns to Italy a few years later to find out who served as an informer to the German soldiers. When Carrie approaches a local town square and speaks English, a blind man begins to play Mona Lisa on his accordion. The melody alerts the town people that an American is around and they run to their homes, afraid of being killed. <laughs>
3: non li batiamo dei vostri soldi. Andate e a casa voi altri. Non in qua andare da quello lì,
1: The second instrumental performance of Mona Lisa seems to favor Carey, as the blind man plays it to let Carey know that the local police are hiding in his hotel room to arrest him. As you can tell by the music, there was a much longer song version written but not used in the film. Livingston and Evans presented that longer song version, in English, of course, to the jazz singer Nat King Cole, who was working on a solo career two years after leaving the King Cole Trio. Johnny Mercer, who had created Capitol Records while churning out Oscar-nominated songs, urged Cole to branch out from just playing the piano to becoming a singer as well, and the advice proved to be very lucrative for all involved. Nat King Cole spent nearly two decades at Capitol Records making a lot of hits, and Mona Lisa was one of them. It was the B-side of Cole's latest commercial release, which meant it got very little radio play. But Livingston and Evans were on a national publicity tour for the song and the movie in summer 1950, about four months before Captain Carey USA was released. Their promotion of the song helped make it a hit, and Nat King Cole's version went to number one on the Billboard charts for five weeks. (laughs) ¶¶
6: Mona Lisa, Mona Lisa, men have named you. You're so like the lady with a mystic smile. Is it only cause you're lonely they have blamed you for that Mona Lisa strangeness in your smile? Do
1: Captain Carey, USA was not a major box office hit, and even if it were, it was most definitely Nat King Cole's version of Mona Lisa that attracted the ears of the music branch and gave the song an Oscar nomination. There's nothing wrong with voters falling in love with a version of the song that did not appear in the film. It's happened many, many times in the past, and it's going to continue to happen in the future. But this is a case of a song presented in two entirely different ways in two different languages. We're going from Italy to the Wild West of the United States for our next nominated song. The film is called Singing Guns, and from the title, you might think it's a musical set in the dust and sagebrush of the American frontier starring Gene Autry or Roy Rogers. But it's not really a musical since the first of three songs performed in the film doesn't come from nearly 40 minutes, and neither of our famous singing cowboys is the star. Vaughn Monroe plays the outlaw Rhiannon, who shoots the sheriff, takes him to the town doctor, gives him a blood transfusion, and becomes the new sheriff while the current one heals. Sounds pretty far-fetched, but it was based on a novel that was a moderately popular seller. Monroe was mostly known for his baritone singing voice on the radio more than his acting, and Singing Guns was his official movie debut. He does okay in the movie, but it's clear he never trained as an actor. For someone who was known for his singing, it is strange that Monroe only got to sing three songs in the movie, but at least he helped bring one of them to the Academy Awards. That song is Mule Train, which Monroe sings on his way back from a trip to a local mine with a horseman. The song is highlighted in the music by pluck strings in the bass and in the lyrics by the phrase clippity-clop to put words to the sound the mule's hooves make on the ground. The verses list several items in the mule train that are being delivered to people in various locations, such as a calico dress, a guitar, and a shovel. This is the type of song that people traveling long distances in the Old West would sing to pass the time on their journey, very much like Bob Hope singing buttoned bows in The Paleface.
7: You. Turn- You train clippity cloppin' over hill and plain. Seems as how they never stop. Clippity clop, clippity clop, clippity, 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 clippity cloppin' along. You train Here, here! You train along the mountain chain Soon they're gonna reach the top Clippity-clop, clippity-clop Clippity-clippity-clippity-clippity-clippity-cloppin' along. There's a plug of charge of and for a miner in Corona There's a guitar for a westerner way out in Arizona There's a dress of calico for a gal in Kokomo Get along Some cotton thread and needles for the folk way out yonder There's a shovel for a miner who left his home to wander There's some rheumatism pills for the settlers in the hills Get along, you. Get along, clippity-clop, clippity-clop Clippity-clippity-clippity-clippity-clippity-clop And along,
1: The song is written by the trio of Fred Glickman, High Heath, and Johnny Lang, all celebrating their first and last Oscar nominations. Glickman had experience with writing cowboy songs, having composed Little Old Band of Gold for Gene Autry in 1939. After that, Glickman played violin in movie scores until this collaboration came about. Lang also wrote lots of songs for Western films, including the Lone Rider series in the early 1940s. Heath started a collaboration with Lang in the mid 1940s, though Heath didn't have as much interest in working in Hollywood as Lang. None of these three songwriters ever had anything close to a hit record in their careers up to that point, but once the likes of Frankie Lane and Bing Crosby got their voices around it, Mule Train became one of the most unlikely hits of 1949 and early 1950. Frankie Lane's version did better than Bing's, going all the way to number one on the Billboard charts for nearly 10 weeks. This version was popular due to the various sound effects added to the record, including the sound of cracking the whip and Lane imitating an actual stagecoach driver. It's also sung at a much faster tempo than the film version, as if the mules were pretty much running at an all-out pace.
8: Trey, ah, ha ha, <laughs> you trek, clippity cloppin' over hill and flame, seems as how they never stop, clippity clap, clippity clap, clippity 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 clapping along. There's a plug of tobacco for a rancher in Corona, a guitar for a cowboy way out in Arizona, aggressive calico for a pretty Navajo. Get along, you! Get along! You train! Ha ha! You train! Liberty clop and long. Gonna reach the top Clippity-clop, clippity-clop clippity clippity along There's some cotton thread needles for the folks away out yonder A shovel for a miner who left his home to wander Some and pills for the settlers in the hills Get along drop Liberty clap liberty clap liberty 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 clap along. there's a letter full of sadness.
1: was not written specifically for inclusion in singing guns, and based on various newspaper articles, the song could have violated the new Academy rules that it not be previously recorded and available for public sale. Reporter Bob Thomas wrote in an article in November 1949 about, quote, all the fuss over a song that was written four and a half years ago, end quote. That would place the creation of Mule Train in early 1945, the article states that Glickman, Heath, and Lang were returning to Los Angeles after a weekend in Las Vegas and began thinking about the mule trains that used to run through Death Valley in the mines. Lang said, quote, "By the time we reached Los Angeles, we had the song pretty much worked out end quote. What makes the song potentially ineligible for the Oscars is the mention of the song being recorded by country singer Buzz Butler sometime in 1947. It appears that the song skirted the rules because the record was never sold publicly. In a November 1949 article printed in the Tampa Tribune, Glickman said, quote, Buzz muffed one word in the song, so I never released the record. Here I had a million bucks lying around and didn't know it. It wasn't until 1949 that Glickman remembered the song, asked Heath and Lang to work with him to change some of the lyrics, and then it was bought by Palomar Pictures as one of three songs for Vaughn Monroe in Singing Guns. The rest is now Oscar-nominated history. Buzz Butler's 1947 recording was released in 1949 along with Frankie Lane's version, Bing Cosby's cover of the song, and many others. Producer Abe Lyman was afraid all of these recordings of the song and their constant play on the radio would really hurt the performance of the song before the February 1950 release of Singing Guns. The movie did okay, but not gangbusters. And Lyman's fears of turning Mule Train into an earworm didn't affect it becoming an Oscar-nominated song a year later. Mule Train was certainly an unusual choice of a song for the Academy's music branch to select as an Oscar nominee, but it definitely stands out over the typical song that we often see, like a love ballad for one. The fifth-nominated song is not a love ballad, but a lavish stage performance near the end of the movie Wabash Avenue, starring Betty Grable and Her Legs. Betty Grable plays Ruby, a burlesque show performer who gets a big break in New York as the lead in a new show by Oscar Hammerstein. The number we see is called Wilhelmina, in which Ruby plays the title girl who every man in Denmark wants. Wilhelmina is the most beautiful girl in Copenhagen, and this is surely the first song you'll hear with so many words to rhyme with (laughs) Copenhagen.
2: She's the cutest little girl in Copenhagen. Well, Amina she has all the best crazy in the noggin, in Copenhagen. And the roses on her cheeks, and the music when she speaks, yeah. and how sweet her kisses taste. Sugar cane is like my mama's Danish pastry. Well, Amina. Maybe soon we will elope in Copenhagen Wilhelmina We'll share everything including my toboggan In Copenhagen All the other girls say No But Wilhelmina, she says No All the boys call Wilhelmina Willie But I call Wilhelmina mine
9: little girl in Copenhagen. Wilhelmina! I mean All you boys have got me crazy in the noggin in Copenhagen. And the roses on her cheeks. And the music when
2: she speaks.
9: And how sweet your kisses taste. Sugar canish like my mama's Danish pastry. Wilhelmina! I mean Maybe soon we will yeah, elope yeah, in Copenhagen. Yeah. Yeah, we'll share everything Including your toboggan in Copenhagen All the other girls say Now But
5: Wilhelmina,
2: she says Nine All the boys call Wilhelmina Willie But I call Wilhelmina mine
1: interesting that lyricist Mac Gordon chose to find rhymes for Copenhagen and not Wilhelmina. Off the top of my head, Xenia, Tina, they both work. But they don't sound as fun as Toboggan and Noggin. Wilhelmina isn't integral to the plot, and like Mule Train, it could be removed from the film without affecting the storyline. There's another song that does fit into the plot well, and it's Baby Won't You Say You Love Me. It's performed three times in the movie, once as a burlesque number and once as a sentimental love song. And the third time, Ruby sings it to confess her love for Andy, the man she's despised for pretty much the entire film, but finally gives in.
9: Wonder if you care, wonder if you miss me. of everything
1: Remember, it's not the studio that determines the nominated songs now, so the music branch must have been more attracted to the big song and dance number in the finale over the Sweet Love song. Mac Gordon was present at the Academy Awards to find out if he would add an Oscar to the statuette he received for You'll Never Know. Though he was initially given a plaque for writing the song, the Academy allowed songwriters to upgrade to actual Oscar statuettes in 1946, which Gordon promptly did. Gordon and Miro were able to see their song Wilhelmina performed at the Oscars by Gloria De Haven and Alan Young, neither of whom had connection to the movie or to 20th Century Fox. Dehaven was just starting her career at MGM, while Young was finding success on television with his self-named variety show. None of the original performers were at the Oscar ceremony on March 29, 1951. Frankie Lane was there to sing Mule Train, and the performance didn't have the best start. Lane brought out a whip to add to his performance, and there were several attempts to start the song with a crack of the whip, but orchestra conductor Alfred Newman missed the cue. Then Lane couldn't get the whip to make the proper sound and refused to continue until he could at least get the first whip crack done properly. It took four tries before Lane and the orchestra to get the song done. Dean Martin and Jerry Lewis, who were starting to become the new Abbott Costello, sang Bibbidi-Bobbidi-Boo in a comical fashion. Martin handled most of the lyrics, with Lewis only chiming in with the boo. Robert Merrill sang Mona Lisa instead of hit maker Nat King Cole, and Lucille Norman was present to sing Be My Love instead of Mario Lanza. Gene Kelly, who was getting ready to unleash an American in Paris on the world in a few months, was the presenter of the Music Awards. Kelly's 1950 musical Summer Stock with Julie Garland got zero Oscar nominations, but I think Kelly knew that An American in Paris would be the toast of Hollywood and the Oscars in a year's time. And for the second time in three years, Ray Evans and Jay Livingston were holding Oscars, winning this time for Mona Lisa. One would think that the two of them would have lots to say, but neither Ray nor Jay went to the podium to give a speech. Gene Kelly handed them their Oscars, Ray and Jay nodded to the audience, and they left the stage. Mona Lisa became the first Oscar-winning song performed originally in a language other than English and cemented Evans and Livingston's partnership at Paramount Pictures, where the two were going to bring us more hit songs in the 1950s. The celebrated film at the Oscars was All About Eve, which had no songs but was still a very good movie. It's become one of the most loved movies of the 1950s, and many historians believe its six Oscars should have been seven, with either Betty Davis or Ann Baxter deserving Best Actress over Judy Holliday. But there was no denying that Ray Evans and Jay Livingston deserved their Oscars, and those songwriters listening on the radio from home knew they had some work to do. Mac Gordon's working partnership with composer Joseph Myro was going well, but this will be the final Oscar nomination for both of them. Both of them were ready to write songs for Betty Grable in 1953 for a movie called The Girl Next Door, but Grable withdrew from the film, saying she didn't like the role she was to play, so June Haver took her place. The songs, however, didn't make any impact on Academy voters in 1953. Their final collaboration together was 1956's Bundle of Joy, starring Eddie Fisher and Debbie Reynolds. Mac Gordon died suddenly in March 1959, And his death seemingly put an end to Myro's career, though Myro would live to be 77 years old, dying of Parkinson's disease in 1987. We'll see who steps up to the plate for the songs written for movies in 1951 on the next episode. As I mentioned, Gene Kelly's An American in Paris is going to be a big player at the Oscars, but not for original song. Its songs were previously written by George and Ira Gershwin, a fact that probably delighted the songwriters hoping for a nomination in 1951. We'll learn who those songwriters are in the next episode. As always, I'm so glad you joined me on the Best Song Podcast. Thanks for singing along with me, and let's do it again next time. The Best Song Podcast is not authorized or endorsed by the
0: Academy of Motion Picture Arts and Sciences. The show's creator, writer, producer, and editor is Jeff Cummings. All music clips are permitted for use under the Education Clause of the Fair Use Doctrine in United States law.